Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, a podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Got a good episode for you today. Uh, we have Raul Sidu. Uh, so he is the co he is the founder of Spider Tech, um, a company that is innovating uh, law enforcement. Uh, it's about technology and uh, law enforcement merging, combining efforts in order to make police departments better. Uh, we're going to talk about his product. Uh, he was a former EMT, um, former uh, a police officer, actually still is a police officer. He still has keeps his certification and still does some um, work from time to time for DM uh, part time and all that kind of stuff. So uh, really appreciated him uh, reaching out. Uh, I'm glad to have him on the program. He did an excellent job. Certainly appreciate him and his time in law enforcement and everything like that. So we're going to jump right into the episode. Thank you so much. I know that you guys are going to rate, subscribe, and share these episodes. Follow Captain Hunter's podcast on IG. Um, that's CPTL Hunter. Twitter, CPTL Hunter. Um, and uh, Facebook, also Captain Hunter's podcast on Facebook as well. So make sure you rate, subscribe, and share. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get right into the episode. Here is the interview for Rahul Sidhu. get going here (laughs) yeah no i mean i it's i i've been kind of tracking the case there's like obviously some information that you know like the the information we're getting versus what the jury has i think it's gonna be very different um i don't know you know i i I thought the murder two based on what they were presenting would be potentially a stretch i think i i heard they took murder three off the table which i'm hoping they didn't um and otherwise it's a fallback to manslaughter and i think if that happens you know it's, it's not going to go well. Mm, I think, I, like you, I've been kind of in and out watching it, but I think mm-hmm. the murder three was still on the table. But okay. I'm, not, I'm not sure, though. I'm not yeah, sure. I've heard, I've heard both. I've heard both things that it is. And yeah, it isn't. yeah. Unless somebody's been watching it steadily, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's always, no. it's always so, so confusing there. It's always so confusing. So, what do you think it's going to be? Uh, I think with the relative shortness of the time, it's going to be guilty. I, I think, yeah. I think they would have, uh, uh, deliberated for a lot longer had it been uh if they couldn't reach a consensus on 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 uh, guilt but because right. it's so short i think i think that uh, i think that's a good sign so i, I can't just, go ahead i know i just texted a, a lawyer friend of mine and um and seeing what her what her uh what her thoughts are um she hasn't gotten back to me yet but i'm i'm really really curious as to as to what's going on i can't imagine uh, a case that has presented more pressure on a jury in America for potentially decades, or at least uh, for the last ten years, in this particular case. She just texted me back and said, uh, "She said guilty too fast. You know, they came back too fast." So I'm, I'm gonna agree. Okay. Uh, yeah. So this is the lawyer friend of mine. So I'm still, I'm still, a, I was former full time, but I'm still a reserve officer right now. So. I got my plate carrier and all that stuff in my car. I know I could get called any moment. So I'm in LA. It's one of the hot spots. Uh, okay, okay, yeah. So, so let's get into you. Uh, I hope please say your name for me because I don't want to butcher it. Please. <laughs> That's all right. Rahul Sadu. <laughs> Rahul Sadu. Um, and so you were a former police officer and still a police officer. Yeah. So I was. Uh, I started full time uh, as a police officer. Before that, I was on the fire rescue EMS side of things as a paramedic and crew chief on the East Coast. Um, and, uh, I'm still a reserve officer here in the Los Angeles County area. 
And so if things jump off, then you'll have to go go to work and help out and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, got to go to my nighttime job. Things pop okay. off. Okay, okay. Very nice. So you so you've been in um in protection services, you know, your whole your whole life there essentially, right? Yeah, public safety. Um uh, you know, starting on the like I said the fire EMS side and then going to policing. Uh, I've been doing it for now like around 12 years or so, 11 12 years and uh, mixing up a bunch of different assignments, different places in the country. And uh, about six years ago, almost five and a half years ago, I left full-time um, public safety and started a tech company that focuses on bringing customer service technology to police departments. And since then, I've traveled to a couple hundred agencies around the United States and spent time helping them with police reform and uh, and more importantly, you know, that, that customer service side of what they do. Very nice. Very nice. Um so were you kind of a, a tech kind of guy or geek or whatever they call themselves? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel like I was definitely raised that way. I was always one of those kids. I was tinkering with computers and I had a little startup in high school that kind of helped pay my way through college a little bit, give me some spending money. Um, and, and so my background has definitely been in both public safety and tech and eventually merged, you know, kind of my love for both with Spider Tech, the company uh, that, that I'm currently the CEO of right now. Um, but before that I was, I was playing around with all kinds of things and, you know, trying to make video games when I was a kid, uh, you know, I, I had a, was working on an app when I was a paramedic to help, uh, send EKGs directly from the field, uh, to physicians in the hospitals to cut down the amount of time it takes to treat a heart attack, for example. So I was, you know, I've been working on this kind of this tech life in the background the entire time until I finally bought it to the foreground. Very nice. Very nice. Um, was that something you learned in school? I know they're trying to teach that that the app building things in school. No, just... no, I I never took classes for it. Um, I studied emergency medicine when I was in college and uh, in high school. It wasn't like a class that I took. Uh, actually, no, I, I did take a computer like science class in high school. It was like an AP type whatever class, um, and I failed miserably. I didn't even I, like it was just it didn't go my way. But it, I think tech is one of those things that. You don't need to take classes for it. It doesn't need to be a formal education. Some of the best software engineers that I know uh, learned, they taught themselves how to code. They never took any classes. Um, but that said, I'm not necessarily a coder by trade. I, you know, I learned how to code, but that's not what I do. Um, I think if you're just generally tech savvy enough and you want to start a business and you want it badly enough, you can you can definitely make uh, you know make a name for yourself in the tech industry. I wonder how many. Uh areas of study really need um, college degrees now. Because I remember watching, I was watching a basketball game, this is a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was it was like a really big game. I think it was like, um, I think like North Carolina versus Syracuse. Like, and uh, like, they were like number one and number two. Yeah. And uh, they were playing in Syracuse. I'll never forget, they were playing in Syracuse and they had, and I think at the time the girls, the girls team was also at the game, you know, they're, and they're kind of showing, uh, and one of the girls is holding up a video camera and like, oh, yeah, no, this is, you know, such and such. She's from the girls team. And, you know, she's studying um, uh, basically like how to make YouTube videos. <laughs> like, why yeah. are you going to college, the University of Syracuse, to learn how to make YouTube videos? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like so social media processing or some, 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 some crazy. And there's a degree in this. I'm like, you got to be. <laughs> <laughs> there's a degree in everything now. Look, I, that's a good question. Like, how much do we really need to? 
I mean, I think the college experience and all the things that you learn throughout college is going to become more important to you than what you actually studied as a major. I feel like the vast majority of people, they have majors that may or may not, you know, they're tangentially relevant to what they end up being, you know, down the line. Like I said, I studied emergency medicine. Um, it, it certainly helped when I was a paramedic. It didn't help as much when I was a cop and it doesn't really help me tremendously now, but it's a great life skill to know. Um, that said, I think unless you're going for like a very specific path, you, you want to become a lawyer. And even then it doesn't really matter what your undergrad is. Uh, you want to become a doctor. You want to get into like a post-grad something, um, or there's just a very niche job that typically requires that you have a degree in that particular thing. It doesn't feel like it's particularly relevant. I feel like most employers, I, I know we do when, if, if we're looking for a college degree, it's just a college degree. It's, it's to see, you know, were you able to complete four years of, of formal education outside of high school um, and, and that structure that, that teaches you. It's also not, you know, I'm not saying that getting a degree is the most important thing in the world. There are plenty of other ways to, to achieve that level of structure and, and kind of grow as a person than, than spend money to go to college. Especially now. I mean, people are yeah. coming out with, you know, $150,000 worth of debt, you know? So, I mean, oh yeah, I, I'm in, I'm in absolute ag agreement with you. I think that many of the life skills now, uh, or, or many of the jobs that we want, you know, really don't, don't necessarily necessarily require a college degree, so I, yeah. I certainly agree with that. So even though I have, it feels a like we're kind of stuck in this in this uh, this like employment marketplace where there's no other dif differentiator. Like it's not about the education anymore that you get from the degree. It's just about like, do you have one? Do you not? And we haven't evolved past that to find a different way to determine if someone's qualified because yeah. they have like the the life experience or the emotional intelligence or whatever whatever else we're looking for. You know, when we're looking for a degree. I, I agree with that. I think that we really need some some different parameters, some different markers to see if you can do this job. You know, maybe mm -hmm. you know, just a, a, a you know spend a day on a job. This is you know emulate you know for, you know for four hours emulate this job. Can you mm -hmm. do this coding or whatever? You know, just can you do it? And then yeah, can you get along with your coworkers? Can you do the job without being a jerk? <laughs> you know, yeah, costing, <laughs> you know, yeah, so, absolutely, yeah. Um, so, so still being in law enforcement, um, what's your, what's your thoughts about, uh, um, I always, I've been asking all my guests this, about the attack on the Capitol, police officers mm -hmm. taking their lives, uh, as mm -hmm. a result of that, um, what, what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, no, look, I, it was mortifying January 6th was mortifying. Um, and, and in so many ways, it wasn't just, you know, an attack on the Capitol. It was, it was, it felt watching, and this is me speaking as a police officer, watching, people beat cops over the head with thin blue line flags was, was pretty insane. It, 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 and I think there are a lot of cops out there um, that had this moment of like disassociation, you know, mm -hmm. regardless of how they feel about politics, maybe they felt that, Oh, these are the people that love us. And these are the people that don't. And they kind of made like, they, they took a simplified view on, on what, what it was. And then when that happened, they thought, okay, maybe we don't have anybody. Maybe like these people who are pretending to love us only when it's convenient um, and when it's, it, when it, you know, when they've got their own agenda, they're going to go do their own thing. They're going to steamroll right past us like anybody else. Um, and I think, you know, I, I noticed a lot of cops thinking that way, kind of challenging after January 6th, the way that they were previously thinking maybe about their political stance, maybe about who they were looking up to from a leadership perspective, um, and, and trying to maybe second guess a little bit about where their allegiances lie. Um, and there are some cops who didn't. There's some cops who probably looked at that and was like, ah, it is what it is. And they just kind of compartmentalized it. But for me, it was mortifying to watch it happen. And and it felt terrible to see these Capitol Hill cops or, or, or Capitol Police basically, uh, you know, 
failed. It felt like failed by leadership, failed by people who were above them that could have made decisions to help them better prepare for that event and to watch them do the best they could with the circumstances they had where they had to surrender certain buildings. I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for them um, to watch the videos of some of the cops fighting while like maybe 20 feet away, the other cops are over there like socializing. Um, you know, that was, was mind bending too. It just felt like a, a true cultural conflict within policing, just as much as it was a cultural conflict in the United States. Mm. And forgive me, but your, your background, uh, ethnicity, Indian, there? Indian. Uh, yeah. have, have you experienced any, uh, racism in your being a police officer, uh, or anything like that? Yeah, look, I, I, I will tell you, um, you know, but when I was a paramedic, this is probably, I've experienced plenty, you know, post 9-11, you're brown guy, you're Indian, you know, you're going to, you're going to get your, your heat for sure. Um, but when I was a paramedic, um, here's a story. I was on duty, um, in, you know, driving an ambulance, I had my EMT in the passenger side, we're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I, you know, I, I make a U-turn to get to a call. I just left children's hospital. Uh, I'm headed to another call for service up North. Um, and we're in traffic. So I throw my lights on for a brief second to get, you know, across the cars and I turn it back on slow speed maneuver, nothing, no sirens, nothing like that. Um, I start heading northbound on the highway and all of a sudden this white SUV, no, doesn't look like a police car, just a white SUV starts pulling up on the shoulder, you know, like illegally pulling up on the shoulder to look inside the ambulance. And I'm like, okay, that's, that creeped me out. I don't know why that guy just did that. So I'm getting ready to call the police on the radio and let them know this is what happened. And, and the car comes up behind me. Pulls, puts on red and blue lights, pulls me over. I'm like, oh, it's a police officer. So I pull over to the side of the road. Again, I'm on duty as a paramedic. And he walks up to the ambulance and he starts screaming at me, say, asking me if I'm a real paramedic. Um, ask, you know, he actually had to give him my paramedic license. I mean, he determined that I was a real paramedic. Didn't ask my EMT anything. She's, she's uh, just female, white, sitting in the passenger seat going, <laughs> you know, she's scared. I'm scared. I was 22 at the time. Um, it was like 10, 11 years ago or something like that. And she, uh, so he comes back, he throws my ID and says, he's coming at me, uh, uh, coming at me, uh, with a warrant because I cut him off in traffic. Um, uh, when I was doing that, like five mile per hour U-turn that I did. And I'm like, man, this guy's just road raging, but I was still like, I must've done something wrong. So I call my chief on the radio. He says, Hey, just come back to the station. Let's talk about it. He finds out before I even get there who the guy was. He was the, the chief of police for Pittsburgh school police at the time, short, stocky, white dude who didn't have a uniform on, didn't have a gun, didn't have a badge, just kind of flashed an ID that I thought said police on it. That, that was the entire interaction, unmarked car. So a, about a couple of weeks later, I find out the guy got fired for that because that was the last straw for him. He had multiple road rage incidents prior, prior where he was pulling people over outside of his jurisdiction. Uh, in Pittsburgh, it's not like in California where, where I've been a police officer, um, you know, school resource officers, et cetera. They're state, you know, sworn cops. They can you know, travel across different jurisdictions and perform arrests. Not like that in Pittsburgh. He couldn't go onto the highway and pull somebody over off duty. That's just not something you do. So he got, he got fired for it. The city attorney calls me and says, Hey, I need you, you know, he's going to, he's appealing. I need you to come and be a witness, uh, testify because he's going to appeal and you have to just tell him what happened. This guy I swear to God in court, when they ask him why he pulled over the ambulance, he said, I was driving erratically, uh, you know, had his lights and sirens on. Um, and they just said, okay, well, that just sounds like an ambulance. So, you know, what was it about this ambulance that, that made you, uh, you know, pull it over? And I swear to God, the guy literally says, 
Well, it, I thought it was a, a, a Taliban war wagon. Those were the words that came out of his mouth in court. He says this. Oh my god! Yeah, and and, and if like I, I say, if you Google my name, you type in Pittsburgh paramedic, you'll find the articles. The guy eventually, in fact, what the news reported was, uh, he said that the FBI um, taught him how to racially profile and to look out for cloned ca- uh, ambulances that were actually car bombs. And so when he looked into my, you know, my the passenger window and saw me driving, he decided to pull it over for the safety of the citizens of Pittsburgh. Um, so that, that was a, a, a rough introduction to policing for me. And that was my, truly my first experience where I felt like, okay, this is a racist, bad cop that, you know, that jammed me up for something. And it could be that he was road raging and he thought his backup option was just to be racist because, or say that it was for <laughs> racism because that seemed like less bad to him. Um, yeah. but that's what ended up happening. Wow. That's, that's a horrible story. I mean, uh, truly, <laughs> jeez, jeez. Um, I don't even know how to follow it up. <laughs> it's just crazy. No, it's, look, it, 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 I wasn't a cop yet. I was a paramedic. I had that experience. I had some other experiences with cops that didn't go so well, but it wasn't, I didn't think it was because of racism. It just wasn't a good experience with cops. So I decided to put my money where my mouth was after, you know, talking to my chief and all these people and, and thinking that I understood policing. Um, and I became a cop. I went to LA. I didn't, I didn't apply to any fire departments. I applied to, uh, to the department that I'm, 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 you know, still with right now. And, immediately learned that 80, 90% of what I thought being a police officer was like was not what it was, that I was wrong about 80, 90% of it. Not to say that there aren't bad cops, there aren't racist cops, but what I thought the job, like the way I thought the job had to be done was just not, it wasn't informed in my head. And so I, yeah. I had a, a, you know, a humble experience understanding what it was really like at the time. Well, now see, that's, that's actually very enlightening. And I wish that more people would do something along those lines, not become the cops, but, but take a, you know, a ride along or yep. join a citizens academy or something like that because they think that they understand certain things. I yeah. was just on I was just on a guest on a on another podcast and uh you know I'm giving my answers and of course and when I look at the YouTube comments it's just like oh this guy's just you know he's just kind of selling out he's you know he's just sticking up for all cops and listen when cops do do things wrong uh, I'm going to call them out. Yeah. You know, I mean it, it, that's just the, the way that I am. But um but 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 for so, so many people think that they understand what police work is like until right. they actually do the job, you know? So it's really, well, you know what? Really it, unfortunate. It's, it's actually, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I've actually been thinking about this a lot in the last week. You, have you seen the uh, Toledo shooting 13 year old kid in Chicago? I heard about it. I haven't watched it yet though. Yeah. Okay. It's, I mean, yeah, it's up to you, but uh, it's, it's a, it's a pretty, that one kind of messed me up a little bit because I, I walked away from that. I thought, okay, it's a tragic shooting and that kid should not, you know, he, he should be alive today. And I wish he was, he didn't deserve to die. I watched that shooting and thought to myself, I don't know that I could have done a better job. Mm. That was like my, my honest takeaway from that, which is a terrifying thought. It's because the, the kid, it was just, it was, it was just terrible circumstances. The, the officer shows up nine shots, fired shots, fired call. He sees these two people in an alley, two of them run. He makes chase to one of them. Uh, the one he's making chase to the, the kid's got a gun in his right hand. Uh, you can, you know, it, the, he, as soon as the kid goes to a fence and tosses the gun and it, it's like 800 milliseconds or something from where the gun was in his right hand. And then he quickly turns and the, the officer's going, show me your hands. And he does. He he drops the gun and then shows him his hands. But it happens in it happens so quickly from where he had the gun in his hands, and then he drops it and his hands are empty, uh, and he drops it behind the fence so you can't really see it. Um, that the amount of time it takes to process something like that, I, until I became a cop and understood this, 
I didn't understand it. I thought, okay, well, he's unarmed at that moment. Then that's the issue. But did, it, it, he he turned so quickly, the officer shoots him one shot in the chest, immediately sees, okay, he doesn't fire a second time. He said, okay, his hands are empty. And he transitions in the body cam footage straight to trying to save this kid's life. He's like, stay with me, stay with me. You can tell how distraught he is. He, they get a chest seal. They perform all kinds of medical interventions on this kid. They're trying their best. And you can, and then that, if you watch that body cam video, it's heartbreaking. This cop does not, obviously did not want to shoot this kid. And just the reaction time was inhuman. I, I just look at that. I'm like, that's a terrifying aspect of this job. And the public will, you know, the news, you know, blasted up as unarmed, shot an unarmed kid, you know, all of that. And I'm just like, man, that could have been me. And I don't have hate in my heart. I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't, I absolutely, it's a nightmare scenario. I would never want to do that. And it's just a scary thing for cops to just feel like they, if they made their best decision, they didn't have any bad intent. It's still, you know, you're getting crucified for it. It was a scary thought that I had this week for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. And so thanks for the preparation because that I, I, I've been struggling to watch that, even though this is what I'm trying to do for a living. <laughs> it's still yeah. a struggle to, to watch these these types no, of videos, not, you know. It's not, and, and especially guys like you and I, who we do this kind of thing for a living, we watch all of them. We yeah. we have to stand for them. We got to watch them. It's tough. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so tell us about your business there, Spider Tech. Sure. Yeah. So oh, you know, I started with uh, with my co-founders in 2015. Um, the basis of the company is to bring customer service and accountability, transparency to policing. The, you know, the way we we kind of looked at this, there's there's a couple fundamental thoughts that the you know we have as a company. Number one, if you were to ask a police chief 10, 20 years ago, what is that performance metric that you feel like will get you hired or fired as a police chief? They're probably gonna tell you it's crime, crime rates going up and down. That was back in the day. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're to ask them what the performance metric is, they're gonna say it's public perception, but they don't have a way to truly quantify that. So that's that's one thing. The second thing is that when I got hired as a police officer, my, my original chief, my first chief told me, what we have here is a bank of goodwill or a bank of trust with the community. I don't know if you've ever heard this analogy, mm. but he said, every time you or another officer or employee go out there and you interact with a member of the public and you have a good positive interaction, you're making a, a deposit in that bank account. Mm. And he wants me and every other officer to make as many deposits as possible because no matter what, you know, someone's going to have a withdrawal. The most perfect agency in the world is going to have a withdrawal. You have to hope you have enough in that bank account to cash that check. That stuck with me. Combining those two things together, uh, it, it led me to believe that interactions between police employees and community members are essentially ground zero for improvements and declines in public perception. Everything that happens after that interaction is a game of telephone. You can't really control for what they're going to say on social media or what the news is going to say. All you can control for is trying to make as many deposits as you can and to optimize those interactions the best you possibly can. So we took that as one of the issues. And the second issue we looked at is the fact that customer service outside of policing has, has truly advanced in the last couple of decades. I mean, if you bought something online, uh, in the last couple of days, you know, you got an e email or text message immediately saying, Hey, here are all the items you bought. Click here to track your order. Your item is shipped, your item is delivered. And then they're going to send you a survey. I mean, they're constantly these automated customer service messages. Uh, we take them for granted. No matter if we're buying a pizza on, on the Domino's app or calling an Uber or buying something on Amazon. So that gap between what the modern consumer has come to expect and what policing is offering people has consistently widened as that technology has been adopted into the private sector. So we built that type of system that automatically provides those customer service communications uh, for policing to be able to not only provide that level of customer service and keep you updated on your, what your 911 call was about, what your case was about, all the way to the court system, not just policing, uh, or you know the police departments themselves, 
Um, and at the same time, we're automatically sending out these mobile friendly surveys to people interacting with the officers to get a better sense of what that feedback looks like. And we get a huge response rate, 15, 30% response rate to these interactions. So it's a lot of data and feedback that these agencies weren't previously getting. We're live in a little over 50 agencies, close to 60 now uh, across North America, including Canada, uh, smaller departments, larger departments. It's not geographically like only in the West Coast. I mean, we're in San Antonio, Texas, Seattle, PD, Washington, uh, the Northeast, and you know, county sheriffs, police departments. We've found that it's every department needs something like this. I think that that's actually a very, very good, good idea. Do you know what the public perception is about that? Uh, how the public receiving th those types of tools? Uh, I mean, look, the public has received it very positively in the sense that it is a step towards accountability transparency to be able to quickly, when you interact with the police officer, be able to, to, to you know, fill out a quick survey to let you, you know, say, this is how we feel about that interaction. So that these departments can further and more quickly identify liabilities within their agencies, areas, opportunities to train or improve, but they can also positively reinforce officers that are going out there and being nice and friendly and helping people and getting positive survey responses. Because now we're creating a metric that didn't previously exist. If you go to departments across the country and you ask them what data are they measuring officer performance with, they're going to tell you it's all enforcement data. It's how many stops do they make, how many uh, citations they write, how many arrests they make. That's not what being a modern cop is about now. Being a modern cop is about going out there, community policing, having good interactions with people as well. So creating a metric there quantifiably that allows departments to measure that is now further changing the culture towards where we need it to go. I, I, think guarantee, it helps that. I guarantee you that if, if cops knew that they were going to be, receive a survey, uh, that they would definitely change the way that they that they approach people. We we actually proved that with an agency in Southern California. The first month that the surveys went out, they didn't tell their officers the surveys are going out. And the second month, they told them and they asked all the same questions and they saw an 18% increase in a customer service scores based on the month that the officers didn't know the surveys going out and the month that the officers did know. Very good. So let me tell a quick story. Uh, sure. I was retired. I was retired. Uh, you know, obviously from my from my department. I go to a state police barracks. Uh, at the state police barracks, um, I, I, you know, I was there for for whatever reason, and so I get there, and it's during the COVID time, so I didn't have a mask on. <laughs> okay. So, but but the, but the but the door, you know, every every other door says, you know, please wear your mask. This door didn't yeah. have it. I'm like, okay, they're not telling me to wear a mask. I'm not going to wear a mask. I knew okay. better. I should I should have a mask on. Sure, <laughs> but I do. Sure. So I go in there, and uh, so I, you know, I don't see anyone. There's a blacked out glass there. Well, you know, you know, cops do. There's a blacked out glass there. We can't see inside. So I'm like, okay. So I pick up the phone, and and they're like, uh, "Do you have a mask?" Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, we'll put it on. And do you have ID? I don't have to show ID. We all know that. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, okay. I'll show you my ID. So I shove my ID underneath the underneath the uh, underneath the glass there. I go and have a seat. Few minutes later, uh, this rude sergeant comes out and he starts asking me questions. Never introduces himself. Never, never, never tells me his name or anything like that. Few minutes later, uh, the person I had given my my uh, ID to behind the glass says, "Barks out Lawrence." Okay, <laughs> here's your ID. Uh, you'll we'll be with you in a second. So obviously they run my name and all that kind of stuff. Calls me my by my first name. What do you think would have happened if I would have addressed that trooper by by his first name? Which yeah. I which I didn't know because I never sure. saw the guy because 
buying a black glass. So my point, my point is this customer service angle that we're that we're talking about. You know, it's yeah. really really so important. Now, if I would have had your tool there, I would have blasted this 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 whole you know state police barracks. Not not that I have anything against the state police or any other police department, but. I believe in professionalism. I believe in courtesy. If you want the public to call us, you know, officer so-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so. And this guy didn't know if I was a doctor, if I have a PhD, if I'm a lawyer, I'm an attorney. He doesn't know. Sure. Just, so so I, I really just, just resented that. And there's another, there was a another situation where this guy, he was a lieutenant. He ended up retiring as a captain. And so when he was in the communications division, he would call doing exactly what you're saying, you know, calling up uh, and following up on different um, calls th that were dispatched under his watch, just seeing how the officer did, did they, was he nice, was he kind? The upper brass actually found out about that and told him to stop it <laughs> because they wow. didn't. So, 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 you know, as you mentioned, uh, people, some, some departments are, are, are into this type of thing. Some departments are not into this type of thing. And I can remember, and this is probably, uh, tell me if it's the same thing in California, where, um, if someone gives out a ticket at, at the bottom of the ticket, they, they wanted us as officers to write the attitude of the driver <laughs> that we give the ticket to. <laughs> Interesting. No, we've never had that. Oh, okay. Well, I always That's thought that was that sounds old school. <laughs> well, it, to me, that, this is my point. It, it sounds ridiculous. I mean, you expect people. We expect people's attitudes to be nice when we're giving them a ticket. Why is this on this ticket? Why are we supposed to be writing this down? So, it, to me, it was just really, really foolish. So, <laughs> no, that's funny. I, the, <laughs> I've never heard that. I've never heard yeah. that. Where, where, where were you? I'm sorry. Where were you? Uh, in Oxford? Connecticut, Waterbury, Connecticut. Waterbury, okay, Connecticut. gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, in, in, in a couple decades of seeing tickets or being issued tickets. I haven't seen that before. <laughs> the, uh, I don't know if it's still on there. So I've, you know, obviously I, you know, when, when I get in the higher ranks, I, I stop writing tickets. I'm not doing this anymore. Sure. Of course. <laughs> but, uh, but I can remember being a patrolman, even as a sergeant, I'm like, why is this on his tickets? This is ridiculous. So um, yeah. And, and it wasn't just our city ticket, the, the, the infractions because Connecticut, you know, is a really small state in comparison mm -hmm. to California and everything. Uh, this was the statewide. So it was on everyone's ticket. So if you were in, I don't know if you know about Connecticut, you know, Hartford, Connecticut, New Haven, sure. Connecticut, we all had the same tickets, all had the same tickets. And they all had this phrase on there, attitude of the driver. Like what the, <laughs> so was, I mean, I look, I get, I get if the judge <laughs> is trying to make a determination and they, they want to know what the attitude of the driver was and whether or not they were remorseful for, for, you know, having whatever mistake they made. I, I can understand the utility for it, but I just feel like that wouldn't fit today. Oh, I, I'm sure. Like I said, I, I I can't speak to whether it's still on air today. I would assume not. Um, but Probably but not. even even when I came on 1995, I'm like, why is this on here? You know, yeah. who's going to be happy that I'm giving them a, a ticket? Uh, yeah, no, of course. Stopped and pulled over, and cars partly towed, and, and you know, and I'm taking away their their potential for livelihood and all that, and they're going to be happy about it. Okay, Mr. No, Officer, <laughs> of course not. So, so, so developing future technologies, um, mm -hmm. is, is that the only thing that you, that you're, that, and, and what you just mentioned was very good. Have you other, other irons in the fire as far as what you're planning? Yeah. To do? I mean, look, I've got some, uh, some pet projects. Um, you know, I, I, uh, at, at our agency, uh, at the agency I'm at today, I teamed up with some of the other folks in the agency. Um, one of the, the, the captains asked me to kind of spearhead a, a project uh, to modernize our air support, you know, whole program. And um, there's an agency in Southern California, Chula Vista PD. I don't know if you've seen this, but they built a semi-autonomous drone program. They're the first one to ever do it. 
and uh, where they're replacing helicopters with drones. They're sending drones from a centralized location in the city to respond only as response. So it's called DFR, drone as first responder, to eligible 911 calls to provide immediate air support for officers as they arrive. And um, we found that pretty fascinating. So we became the second agency in the country to do it. Um, and I, I basically put the program together as a program manager. And uh, that was that that's that's something that we're now doing with other agencies. We're you know doing it with other agencies in LA County where we're providing air support through drones. The way that I, I set it up with with everybody else was we have a centralized hospital in our city. And um, from the rooftop of that hospital, it's pretty you can pretty much see everything clearly. It, we can follow FAA guidelines. And like I said, a call comes out for like, you know, theft that just occurred, a, a stolen vehicle, something like that. A drone can be dispatched semi-autonomously from that hospital rooftop directly to the car and uh, or the call. And an officer that's flying the drone via mouse and keyboard um, at the station can easily control the drone as if they were flying a helicopter and provide the call outs that a helicopter would. So that's, I, I spun that up. Um, we got some New York Times coverage on that. Uh, I, I think now like a month and a half or so ago. Um, and now other our other agencies have been helping other agencies do that. But that's not part of the business. That's just me, you know, as, as an officer at, at my agency right now, helping people do it. Well, th I think that's fascinating and, and fantastic, quite honestly. I think that uh, I can definitely see that, that that type of program taking off, even for smaller departments who don't have, uh, yeah, the budget, the budgets for for actual helicopter pilots, you know, right, and and, and all the departments that have have taken it are smaller departments, like mm. two hundred minus, you know, less than two hundred cops, uh, in some cases like less than you know fifty, sixty cops, where yeah, they don't have the budget for a helicopter program, and and drones are cheaper, safer, faster, greener. I mean, they're 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 better in all those ways. They can't replace helicopters completely. Don't get me wrong. You know, if you have a high speed pursuit that's crossing county lines, you're not going to send a drone for that, right? But 90% of, of, of a lot of these calls can can be handled via drone. And the threshold ends up lowering a little bit to where it's like, okay, I'm not going to send a helicopter for a shoplifting that just occurred, but it cost me nearly no money to send a drone. Um, and it, it doesn't you know impact public safety. Now, what I'm sorry, it doesn't impact um, the safety of, you know, it's a manned aircraft and something bad can happen. Now, the, the important thing here that we had to ensure, we met with the community a variety of times to ensure that, we were doing this in a way that respected community privacy. Um, we had to understand the civil rights component of what we're doing. There's no patrolling of the drones. There's no surveillance. It's strictly response to community calls that are eligible for air support. So if a helicopter can go to it, a drone can go to it. So from a different standpoint, there's no difference there. Um, but what I will say is that that's something that you know I, I worry about. I want to make sure that we conti continuously approach it that way, that agencies will approach it that way. They aren't going to use the drones for patrolling. They're not going to use the drones for surveillance. I know, you know, I set up the SOPs at our agency to make sure that it's done that way and we do a good job, but there's going to be at some point, some agency is going to start kind of really bending the, the rules on a little bit, getting into the gray area, and then it's going to make all drone programs look bad. But for now, you know, we, we've done, a, I would say, a good job at making sure that we're, we're maintaining that threshold. Uh, I think that that's correct, and that seems like it's inevitable. Some some idiot chief somewhere is going to order that, right? Somebody's yeah. going to call it. Somebody's going to call in sick or something like that. He's like, oh well, we just send a drone out and we just cover his area with a drone or something, you know. Some <laughs> you don't see, yeah. foresee that coming. <laughs> well, I think the most likely use case in which we start blending into the gray areas are like you know you've got a rash of crimes, you've got something serious, and you're like, of course it would be useful for us to send the drones to start looking because cops can't you know, converge a certain area. If, if you have a lot of 
vehicle thefts that are happening between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. in a particular neighborhood, and you can get continuous drone coverage to see if you can finally catch those bad guys, the 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 juice feels like it's worth the squeeze. And I would say if you're going to do that, okay, but don't do it out of your you know your drone as first responder program. Then you got to do it out of your like you know a separate drone deployment that the city council's already approved for the purpose of this type of 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 you know use case. And it, then then it changes it, but you got to keep that drone's first responder program sacred because if you don't, then you're going to have that bleed over, and people are going to assume, okay, well now you're using this to surveil the citizens. Yeah, surveil the citizens, and um, I would think that uh, maybe, maybe even some unions would fight against that because once again, you know, if you're if you're doing that, then you don't need, maybe you don't need as many cops, maybe we don't need to fill this overtime, maybe we can cut back on this and that and the other. So maybe some unions which just try to protect their. That's a good point. So. It's a good yeah. point. Yeah. Um, police reforms. So you've been to a lot, a lot of different departments talking to them about police reform. So I assume mm -hmm. that these are pretty progressive police departments who are looking to improve their relationships with the communities, correct? Well, you know, I would say, um, you know, on a graded scale of being progressive, some of them are far more progressive than others. Mm -hmm. I go to a lot of agencies that have an interest in, um, and I, and there's nothing wrong with this. They have an interest in in preventing a major disaster, right? They have an interest in understanding what to do after a major disaster occurs, or generally just ensuring that they're doing enough so the community uh, feels that they're being accountable, they're being transparent, they're providing a good service. I don't think and nowadays. I don't think you you know you have to be like a fair, like extremely progressive agency to simply want that for your department. I feel like that is now most agencies are looking at least to be able to solve for that particular hurdle because of what they saw happen last year and how unprepared they might have felt after that. There are a lot of police chiefs in America that feel like they're a little bit blind to, you know, identifying where the liabilities are and preventing them from happening, and and then all of a sudden you throw in a survey system that that makes them feel like I was blind and now I can see. And again, you don't have to be a progressive chief for that. You just have to want your job well enough. <laughs> you know, you have to, you have to have like the fear of losing your job. And, you know, in, in places like that, I've, I've been to plenty. Uh, you know, like I said, it's not just the West coast, it's the South, it's the Northeast, it's all aspects, all different places in the United States. And, and everyone has that shared and I would say productive to a certain extent fear of, of, uh, you know, these chiefs and captains, assistant chiefs, command level folks of, we need to make sure that we can get out ahead of anything that that could go wrong. And and I think that is driving productive change in a lot of ways. And the uh, response from the officers, the first line officers there, what's, what's their response been, particularly to these surveys? <laughs> you know, 50 plus agencies, zero union problems. Mm. We, we have not had any issues with unions. And, and in the beginning, I thought maybe they're, you know, I, I didn't understand it well enough. Um, and I sat down with a couple of union leaders and they all told me very similar things that we're making their jobs easier versus making their jobs harder. Mm -hmm. The things that they could tell me, the things that they felt like they, they couldn't tell me. And one of the, some uh, from a, or what they were inferring, I would say on the back end, on the front end, they were telling me, just like I told you, our officers are out there, you know, they're, they're, the liability to go out and be cop right now and do be proactive and, and go, you know, look for crime is too high. So making stops, et cetera, the unions are advising, hey, don't go out there, don't make stops if you don't have to, you know, lay low. And I would agree with that. I mean, like you 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 want to you want to obviously balance public safety and, and reducing crime with what the, the community is asking for you to do. If you go to a community and you're out there making as many stops as you can and your idea is like I'm gonna go out there, then I'm reducing likelihood that crime is occurring. And the community is going, this is over-policing. We don't want this. This is too much. 
then you're not doing something that's beneficial to the community based on what they want. If you're in a place where you're not making enough stops, this is the vice versa, and the community is going, hey, we need you guys to help make us safer. Crime is now on the rise and we are now reacting to this, asking for you guys to be more proactive, then that changes things as well. But in a lot of places, it's the former rather than the latter. And in, in that case, the unions are obviously advising, keep it low. And if you're advising your officers, keep it low key. And like I said, the only metrics you're judging their performance on are these enforcement metrics. And all of a sudden these enforcement metrics dump, the unions are looking for other ways for those officers to show that they're still productive. They're still good cops and they should still be rewarded. And if you're simply going out there and showing that when I respond to calls, people really like me and I'm, I'm helpful to these callers and I'm taking the time to provide good customer service then that could be enough for these unions to go, okay, well, these cops shouldn't be reprimanded for not making stops because they're going out there and they're engaging in good community policing. And that's what the surveys show. So in that case, we're helping in that sense. Now, the what, the interesting thing that they're kind of dog whistling to a certain extent, and I can understand where this comes from, is the union has a legal requirement to, you know, to protect all the officers. You, you put into the union, they're going to provide this legal protection for you, even if you did something kind of dumb. Right. And that puts a lot of times that puts the union presidents and union into into kind of a sticky position where they're like, God, I know this guy. I might feel like this guy doesn't deserve to be here, but I have this obligation to, you know, to do everything I can, just like a defense attorney would, uh, you know, if, if they believe that their their client might be guilty, do everything I can to, you know, to, to have this person have their day in court. Now, if you have more and more of these surveys that go out that make it obvious, um, the likelihood of of somebody that's constantly getting bad reviews being able to skirt away from from some type of punishment or even potentially termination ends up you know being lower and lower over time and that particular person who might be a problem for the department and the union might not make it past that next case and that problem has solved itself but the union did the, the best they could to try and protect that person within their legal requirements so you know it's one of those things where i found that unions want to get rid of some of their their bad cops they do their hands get tied a little bit. They don't know how to do it. Um, and sometimes they go into some of these cases and they go, man, I hope this guy doesn't get away with this. But mm. just like the defense attorneys, they have to do their job. Yeah, well, uh, that's a really, really solid point. I've done a couple of shows on police unions, and uh, I do agree that the vast majority of the people in the leadership of the unions know that this guy or gal is a knucklehead. No, they shouldn't be on the job, but they have to do their job. You know, they're, yeah. this is what they're paid to do and paid to protect. It's frustrating because all of law enforcement suffers from that. You know, we all know that how, you know, this guy, this idiot here, Derek Chauvin, made all of law enforcement, you know, look foolish and set us back, you know, of decades. Course. <laughs> but uh, but they have to do their jobs, you know. So. And you, you, you know what? The unions are also designed to, to, to in some cases, to, um, to ensure due process, ensure that the agencies follow the rules that they set and the city follow the rules that they set and 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 fight for that particular you know that the, that concept and i can't i'm never going to be against due process so mm -hmm. you know in that sense you know i i value that and i think every job in america everybody you know just like we are as cops everyone should be innocent until proven guilty and and they should follow due process then let the process identify what happens to that person sometimes it doesn't work out the way that we want it to um, but that due process, I think, is going to be able to be the most important thing, no matter who you are. Um, does California have a police officer bill of rights? Do you know that about that? We do. do they have that? Uh, Maryland just got rid of theirs. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, what, what do you, did you hear about that? What do you think about that? Yeah, look, I. This is a very difficult thing to do. Hmm. There are reforms that. I think are productive reforms that I think aren't necessarily productive, but ultimately whether or not I feel like they're productive, the, the big impact that some 
of, of the last nine months are having on policing that I think is going backwards is we're, we're losing good cops uh, because they're genuine genuinely and right, righteously afraid to do the job because they feel like even if they do the job the way they're trained or they do the job, you know, in the, like I said, this, the, the Toledo shooting, they're going to be potentially put in a position where the department won't have the back, the public won't have their back and they did the best they possibly could. And I think the more we remove certain protections that are reasonable, I'm not saying the unreasonable ones, but the reasonable ones, the, the more we're going to create not just a retention problem, but a recruiting problem. Mm-hmm. Because the, the average salary for police officer in the United States is less than $50,000. And if, if our complaint is that we're not getting the best cops we could possibly get, that we need to have a higher caliber of police officer to join the job, and then we need to be able to train them to a level that, it, that rivals how we're talking about uh, uh, an understanding of the law for lawyers. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, all these things, they take money. They take resources and to be able to recruit these types of people, you need to give them a job that they're willing to take. It honestly feels that every day that goes by, someone who's becoming a cop, it's like, I feel like I want to advise them, hey, this might not be a good job. If you're trying to have a family and you're trying to have a stable job and you don't want to lose any of these things, this is a risky job for you to take. It feels that way. I don't want to say that because this this is a noble profession and I want the people to join this 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 profession to, to treat it as such and I, I want the best of the best. But it, it feels like our hands are tied and, and we're going backwards in terms of being able to recruit good talent and retain good people. The cops that are out there that could be doing something else today if they you know if they're starting to think about I don't want to lose my my house my family doing the right thing they're going to leave being a cop and then we're going to be left with a bunch of cops who like me are are potentially crazy enough to stick around uh, or um or cops that just don't have any other options potentially and I don't know that that's going to be a better circumstance for these communities and the ones that are going to be joining it's going to be a very similar thought so it's tough I feel like we're creating a worse environment in some ways I'm not saying it's not worth it I'm not saying that there aren't things that we have to do to make change but some of these kind of knee-jerk reactions to taking away protections that people don't quite understand why they exist are going to take a lot of those good, smarter cops that go go do something else away from the fray, and it's 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 painful. Yeah, no, I think that's that's well said. It was there's already a recruitment problem going on right now, as you well as you well know, and I know that there is a retention problem going on. I can think, I was just at my police academy or former police academy the other day, and uh, they were telling me about a bunch of guys who had just quit just quit i mean just yeah. uh just wanted to do something else uh, i talked to another guy he actually went from my department to another department talked to him on facebook and he said he just started his own company he's like listen i can't do this law enforcement thing anymore because i'm so concerned about one bad shoot you know so it yeah. was just and once he actually he quit around the uh the george floyd protest and all that so um, so I definitely, I definitely agree with you that uh, you know what what are we going to be left with if if all the good cops uh, uh, leave? You know, so you know, I I I think the public thinks that the cops that are quitting are bad cops that are no, like, yeah. oh, I can't get away with being a bad cop anymore. I'm going to quit. That's just not what it feels like to me. That's not what what I've seen. And granted, I don't have some type of quantified study that's anything less than anecdotal, but I've hired a few cops at our company just in the last few months. And these are brilliant cops. They're, 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 they're amazing. They're highly empathetic. They're very intelligent. They're the kind of cops that you want to be cops, but they decided I can't do this job as it's being presented. Now it feels nearly impossible. I gave them an opportunity to come and they're, I'm so fortunate to have them at, at our company, but we're seeing more and more of that. 
it's the good cops that are leaving. The bad cops don't have options. I wish the public understood this, that they're not squeezing the bad ones out. Mm. Yeah, that's well said. And I, and I would echo that. The guys that I knew who had quit uh, were good guys uh, and smart, intelligent. Well, like I said, one guy started his own company. He did something along tech lines as well. He started, uh, he, he would write his own apps and all that kind of stuff. So just smart, mm-hmm. smart guys. Uh, and just saying, listen, this, this job as it's becoming is, is just not for me, not for me. Uh, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about, about the future of law enforcement, um, mm-hmm. what we see going. We're already kind of going down this down this path here. Uh, if this trend continues, what do we see? What do you what do you envision for law enforcement? You know, I like to be a glasses half full guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even then, I think it's going to get a little worse before it gets better. And, and what I mean by that is, is we have to wait for but there's a lot of like emotional punitive responses to policing right now that are making things worse. I think defunding the police, for example, all the things that, you know, you and I know need to improve. If we're talking about training, if we're talking about getting better cops, we're, you know, like that's a funding issue. That's not, you know, defunding the police doesn't work. I, I remember talking to somebody, it's a friend of mine and, and, and he's very, um, you know, he, he, he's, I, I, someone I've known for a long time, I truly respect him. He's a little bit more on, on the side of defunding the police, et cetera. And he was telling me that he believes generally um, that the cops need to show that they're worthy of receiving the funding to then get the funding back to then do all of these things. And that it feels like an emotional punitive response because we're only going to get worse without, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to handle these things. Like I said, the, we're going to get worse cops. All those things are going to happen. Cops aren't, they're not going to go, okay, we really have to do our best to, to get the money we want to do. Or, no, they're just going to quit or they're just going to resign themselves to this is what it is. They're going to have an us versus them mentality and things are going to get worse. So that's what I'm afraid of. That said, there are good things I think are happening too. I think um, agencies are, are, like I said, looking at a command level, they're looking for um, ways to improve, to, to build better relationships, to identify these liabilities, to clean things up. And I think that's been a positive side effect. Um, I think that the, you know, cops themselves, I, you know, I was deployed to the, uh, to the, the, like during the riots last year. And I know I've, I got that feeling that cops are going, okay, who's the Derek Chauvin in our agency? Who's that liability? And they're trying to root that out to a certain extent. They don't want to associate themselves with that particular person. I do think newer cops hopefully are coming into this job with a mindset of what being a modern cop is like, because they are going into it in this environment. So, you know, I'm hoping that that's the case, but, um, I think it's going to be a little bit of a rocky road until people choose to be pr- practical about how to make improvements. I think that's going to be something that, that has to change. I think actually the, the the biggest change that I think cops and activists are agreeing on are what needs to be a police responsibility versus what doesn't need to be a police responsibility. Yeah. Mental health, addiction, homelessness, these are not police problems. And we have treated the police as a swipe, you know, sweeping under the rug solution to these problems. And we've gotten police results. I think that's ultimately one of the biggest things that I fundamentally agree with. We need to be sending different types of tertiary responders to, you know, secondary responders, I guess, to, to, to these calls where you've got mental health specialists, you've got a system that works for addiction, that works for mental health. I mean, in California, what we do with, with uh, an acute mental health issue is we put them through a 72-hour involuntary ment- uh, hold, and then we put them right back on the streets, and there's no cycle of, or continuum of care that works. And the, the, the problem repeats itself. Now, I don't think that we need to necessarily replace cops with this because I I, I know you've, you and I have both done the job. You, you'll respond to a, what seems to be a benign mental health call and you show up and by the time you get there, that person who is just simply talking to themselves on the bus just stabs somebody in the eye. 
And you needed to be there to handle that because it became a violent confrontation before you even arrived. And had they not dispatched you, they could have potentially stabbed more people. We know that that's how it works, but there are agencies out there that bring mental health, including mine, that bring mental health professionals to calls and will make them essentially primary on that call and say, hey, unless this situation turns violent or highly criminal in nature, this is your call. And I'm just here to make sure that you feel safe and that, that everything's okay. And that I think is a, an appropriate response that we start doing more of that. And those responders can actually operate out of the fire department. They don't need to operate out of the police department. If you feel like there's a conflict of interest there. You know, we don't need to spin up a, a, another agency. We can have them. It's mental health is health. We can have them operate out of the fire department, just like the paramedics do. Mm. Addiction, homeless liaisons. I mean, these are people that we need to respond to these calls alongside us and ultimately take ownership unless we need to be there. And I think that's going to decrease all these situations, a, 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 a vast majority of situations that and potentially being, you know, dialing it back on the T-stops and ped stops. I think will we'll create less scenarios in which, something went bad i i agree with that and I, I think that's 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 well said and certainly i hope that uh we definitely need to do something about these particular crises all these different social issues and ills that that uh, the police are are responding to and of course as you mentioned everything to us is is a nail and we're the hammer so sure um so where can we get uh people can reach out to you for your company get your 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 technologies and all that sure we, so the website, go to, go to our company website, it's Spider Tech. There's no E in Spider, S-P-I-D-R tech.com. Uh, if you want to reach out to me personally, hit me up on Twitter, R-A-H-O-O-L-S-I-D-O-O. -O -O -O. That's my Twitter handle. Um, happy to connect with anybody, talk about this stuff. You know, this is this is my life. Uh, I'm passionate about it. And uh, just like you, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm out there, not just as the CEO of the company, but as, as another officer that's trying to bridge the gap a little bit and, and, and try and solve some of, these, some of these problems, I'll talk to anybody and, and, and see if I can help. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, man. It was really, really great conversation, man. I really, really appreciate it. So, Anytime, um, sir. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for your service there. Man. So. <laughs> Not as much as you. You've well, had plenty more years than I have. Well, Don't be thanking um, me yet. <laughs> you're continuing on and you're fighting through this through this craziness that we got going on here so that and you're, you're sticking with it you know so and we appreciate good officers like we just said all the good officers aren't, aren't leaving although many of them are but you're sticking through it and thank you for that man because we need your technology i think it's really important i think that we need your your attitude um and uh, we need you to spread everything that you have about yourself to to be that good shining light and example uh to other officers you know so and i hope that people and chiefs will listen to this episode and say hey you know what this is a good technology the ideas are really really good especially about the uh, the drone program uh, i like this the survey idea i think that all that is just good so uh, i appreciate wonderful, it sir. thank stuff. you absolutely all right brother we'll talk to you again that's good <laughs> police reform is more than just a trending topic my name is lawrence hunter i'm a retired police captain from the state of connecticut and i've written a new book called police reform and I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss in the ride between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, Make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Reform today.